our sleep is meant to allow us to wake up the next day able to meet the joys and the challenges of that day. Oftentimes we meet the challenges, they're the things that we have to do, we have to get done, but we don't meet the joys. So for example, if we're really tired and we've done all this work at work and we come home and our partner says to you, um, look, it's so exciting, I've just booked a great restaurant, we're going to go out, we're going to have a really good time. So many people go, oh no, I just want to go to bed. (laughs) So that we're not meeting the joys which is bad because that's what we want to meet. We want to have the joy in our life. If Why would we want to work if we can't have joy? The Giant Thinkers. Giant Thinkers Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. G'day, wonderful giants. Ram Castillo here. Welcome to episode number 45. Our guest is a former lawyer and educator who has a PhD in sleep medicine from Sydney University and consults with companies and educational institutions all over the world on sleep health. She's an internationally recognized doctor that has been working in the world of sleep for nearly 20 years. She's the managing director of Sleep for Health, and an honorary research fellow at the Children's Hospital Westmead. She's also a founding member of the Sleep Health Foundation and a member of the Australasian Sleep Association. On top of that, she's written two books, The Sleep Diet is One and The Complete Guide to a Good Night's Sleep is Another. Some of the topics we spoke about include the stages of a complete sleep cycle and how each affect our mind and bodies, how much sleep we actually need and why, the differences of sleep requirements for males versus females, how to naturally achieve better sleep, how to create a sleep plan, her thoughts around power naps, what it means for those who snore, sleep talk, sleepwalk or jolt suddenly, and plenty more. There is so much information here, so get cozy and feel free to take some notes as well as you will be bombarded with tips you can implement immediately. Now, before we begin, we all know that this topic of sleep is incredibly appealing to all of us. We all know that getting enough quality sleep is crucial for good health and well-being. But did you know that our lifestyle and everyday habits directly correlate with our sleep? I want to introduce you to a company that I use and love because they've helped me with this area. They're called AH Beard and have over 115 years experience in the bedding business. AH Beard is on a mission to improve people's lives through better sleep. Partnering with leading sleep experts like Dr. Carmel, who is actually today's guest, AH Beard is the place to go when you want the answers to those niggling sleep issues. I highly recommend you jump onto their website ahbeard.com, sign up to their next free six-week sleep challenge or explore their sleep coach section where you can find up-to-date articles and expert advice on everything sleep-related. Head to ahbeard.com, that's A for Apple, H for Hector, beard.com to start improving your life through better sleep. 
All right, let's dive straight in. I present to you the warm, generous, and intelligent Dr. Carmel Harrington. Dr. Carmel Harrington, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Oh, fabulous, Ram. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, have to say that uh, the topic of sleep uh, has been incredibly popular with the Giant Thinkers audience. I've been posting uh, requests of of what people's thoughts are on this subject and there's lots of questions, so hopefully we can squeeze them all in. Um, And, you know, no doubt most listeners, including myself, can improve our sleep behaviour. Before we begin, a special thanks to our mutual friend Gillian Wise who connected us. So if she's listening. Hello, Gillian. Yeah, and thank you. (laughs) We'll start off with an icebreaker question, which I always do with Mm -hmm. my guests. Would you rather visit the world 100 years into the past or 100 years into the future? Well, 100 years in the future. I just think what's happening ahead of us is so exciting. I have no idea of what could happen, but wouldn't it be fabulous to see what does happen? And the world of medicine is changing, you know, minute by minute. So just to see what's happening then would be just amazing. I I completely agree. Now, where would you say your expertise lies? Definitely sleep, Ram. (laughs) I've been, um, look, I started working in the world of sleep about more than 20 years ago now. And when I first I um, told my friends I was moving from law because I used to be a lawyer. I was moving from law to go and research sleep. They thought I was having a joke on them because I always have liked to sleep. And they would say to me, oh, what are you going to do now? Just sleep all day. It, they had no concept about what was involved in sleep, and nor did I. I was just interested in the topic. Um, and, wow, I just have learned so much. And, indeed, in the, in the time I've been in sleep medicine and working and, and researching sleep, a whole understanding of sleep has changed. Fascinating stuff. Um, can you tell us a bit about your childhood and then maybe expand on those points of how you made that transition? Yeah, it's a really um, diverse way of going about it. There's been no planning or strategy in my career. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, look, I was one of seven children, um, grew up in quite a humble household, um, four girls and three boys. Um, my parents, um, we didn't have much money uh, we didn't have a car, for example, so we walked everywhere. But their big emphasis on for all of us was education. So there was never any doubt that we were going to go to university and we could do what we liked after that, but university was definitely on the agenda. So it meant that all of us uh, uh, enjoy education, we enjoy learning, and we've um, all achieved you know, quite a lot in our in our own, career, own chosen careers. Um, and, of course, uh, when you're young. I started off in science. I've always loved science. But it's the fact of life that in Australia, the life of a scientist is hard uh, financially, especially. And um, it was and still is the case that every three years you have to apply for a grant to get your research done. So as a scientist, um, I realised I wasn't going to make a whole lot of money ever. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to go and study law. And I went and studied law and I was a lawyer for a little bit. And then I realised, you know what, I really am a scientist. (laughs) There's no getting away from it. And while you can earn, you know, you can earn money in law, um, I found out the hard way that money itself is not sustaining and indeed, um, go with your love, go with your passion. So I went back and um, did my PhD in sleep at Sydney University and have loved it ever since. Was there a, a certain trigger that? 
Yeah, there was a certain trigger. It's a, it's a tragedy and often people's lives are shaped by their tragedy. Um, I am particularly interested in, in child uh, paediatric sleep or infant sleep and I research cot death um, because my son actually died from sudden infant death. And at the time, and still today, we don't know why, but our knowledge is improving all the time and increasing and we will we will work it out um, hopefully before I leave this earth. I hope we do leave it, work it out, but I'm not going to leave any stone unturned in the process of trying to find out why. Mm, that's really uh, admirable, and uh, and uh, sorry for the for your loss. Um, I love how you've used that to propel you into this uh, area of research. Yes, well, I think there's many, many, many people that have had a um, a tragedy or a life changing event that then changes their life, changes their entire perspective on life and it gives them so much more um, wealth of experience and um, vigour about their, their future life, because, about their life they're living because there's a purpose, which often people struggle, especially when we're younger, we struggle for what's the purpose of all this? What am I doing? I'm earning money but I don't know if it's making me happy or satisfying me. And I feel like quite early in, on, in my life I got a really wonderful purpose. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that. I uh, think that we could speak about uh, <laughs> purpose and um, and navigating our way to um, the the personal reasons why we do what we mm, do. And mm. and um, but uh, maybe we'll we'll save that for another interview. Um, I want to uh, dive into this beautiful phenomenon of sleep um, and how it affects our health and vitality. Can you describe to us, you know, um, just thoughts that come to mind around what sleep actually is and how it affects the balance of us being awake and the things that um, that we do in terms of our energy levels and mm-hmm. all those things? You know, I, one of the things I never anticipated around when I first started researching sleep is that I would become an evangelist for sleep and feel that part of my mission today is not just researching the biochemistry of sleep, it's what, what I do, but also to make people, other people aware of just how important sleep is because we seem to have lost our way when it comes to sleep. And everybody, um, so many people, not everybody, but so many people aren't getting the sleep that they need. And they sort of feel like sleep is for the week, you know, that I'll sleep when I'm dead or I'm too bu- I'm too busy to sleep. And so I've got something really, really important I want to achieve and I'm not going to sleep in the process. But um, there's a, a, you know, Hugh Mackay, the social commentator, I loved it when he said, you know, when we ask people these days, how are you? You know, so they say, oh, how are you going, Ram? Not necessarily you, but someone else will say, oh, I'm really busy. Now, when you ask that question, you're not actually asking them about their workload. You're asking them about them and how are they going. And so we've actually lost our way in in understanding what makes us human, what gives us human traits, you know, all the, the important, all the sustaining important things of life. And indeed, so come back to sleep. It would have been far safer in caveman days to be quietly awake in the cave than sound asleep. But it wasn't our option. We needed to be asleep for about eight hours in our 24-hour period. And what people don't understand is what we do in sleep, what physiological processes we perform in sleep, we cannot do when we're awake. And what we do in wakefulness, we cannot do when we're asleep. Now, we don't discuss or dispute the fact that the fact that things that we do when we're awake 
are essential for our survival. Like we eat and we exercise, we get rid of our waste products, things like that, which without doing that, we wouldn't survive. People don't seem to realise that without sleep, we wouldn't survive either because we do functions in sleep that we can't do in wakefulness, which are just as essential for our survival. So when we don't sleep enough, we have physical um, health consequences, we have brain health consequences, and we have mental health consequences. And I just want people to understand that and to be educated about the fact that when I swap my sleep for wakefulness, there's, it's, the benefits are not high. The benefits are actually low and the costs are really high. But people have that equation around the other way. They think the benefit is high and the cost is low, but it's actually completely different. I'm glad you addressed the, uh, how are you going? Yeah, busy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's, it's this whole thing about, um, not, not everywhere, but there, there is certainly a growing presence, isn't there, mm-hmm. of the, this, this um, 24-7 hustle mentality, Absolutely. go, 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 that yeah. praised um, trait. Um, but uh, more and more I'm finding maybe it's the, that now that I'm well into my 30s that it's uh, definitely uh, dawned on me how important <laughs> it is. Um, I'd love to talk about the science behind it, maybe intertwined with uh, this next question on what are the stages mm. of a complete sleep cycle? Yes. Yeah, so again, we'll come back to, you know, wakefulness versus sleep. So Wakefulness is a neurobehavioural state. So we have certain brainwave activity and we have certain behavioural activity. So um, most people are aware that when we're awake, we move around, we shake, we do all that sort of stuff. Behaviourally, we can recognise when someone is awake. And neurally, if you've got EEG happening, if we're looking, measuring your brainwave activity, you've got very distinct brainwaves of wakefulness. Um, so I wouldn't need to see you. You could be behind a, a curtain and I'd be looking at your brainwaves and I'd think, okay, Ram's awake. I know he's awake because I can see his brainwaves. So sleep is another neurobehavioural state, but it's not just one. It's two other neurobehavioural states. And one is called rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep or dream sleep. Three names for the one neurobehavioural state. Now in REM sleep or dream sleep, behaviourally, we're paralysed, all right? So we can't move any of our muscles. And this is a time that our brain is really active. Our body's not doing very much. It's paralysed, but our brain is really active and you've got very distinctive brainwave activities for REM. Now, one of the reasons or the primary reason why our body is paralysed when we're in REM sleep is otherwise we would act out our dreams because visually they're very real. And there'd be nothing to stop us from acting them out. And in fact, there's a disorder of sleep called REM behaviour disorder. And people who have this disorder actually can act out their dreams. And indeed, it has been um, used as a complete defence to murder when people have murdered people in their sleep because they've been acting out a dream. It's really sad. And for your listeners, you can't prove it easily. So don't think you're going to get away with murdering someone and saying I've got REM behaviour disorder. But anyway, it's a true disorder and it's unfortunate if it's not diagnosed. Now, the other neurobehavioural state is um, non-rapid eye movement sleep. Um, scientists are very clever with the way they name things. So sleep is defined by the absence or presence of rapid eye movements, okay? So in um, non-rapid eye movement sleep, we've got three different stages. There's stages one and two and then stage three. Now stages one and two are known as a light sleep and this is the way we go into sleep. We 
we don't actually spend much time in light sleep throughout the night, in, in stage one, light sleep. We spend a lot of time in stage two, light sleep. And then we go into stage three, non-REM, which is also our deep sleep. Now, our deep sleep is a stage where we do a whole lot of um, physiological work, uh, physical work, repairing and restoring our muscle and body, our cardiovascular system, our nervous system. This is where the only time in our 24-hour period that the body can really make sure that the body is ready to go the next day in wakefulness. And many people, and I'm amazed at how many people give up sleep for exercise. They think, oh my gosh, I haven't got any other time to exercise, so I'm going to get up at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, cut short my sleep and go and exercise for an hour and a half because they think they build the muscle in the gym. It's only a building block. You complete that in your in your sleep, in slow-wave sleep. This is where we secrete our beautiful growth hormone and we get good muscle building and we get good repair of muscle in our deep sleep. In deep sleep, as compared to rapid eye movement sleep, when our brain is very, very active, our brain is very inactive and it's got these big delta waves and the brain's not doing very much at all, but the body is very busy. So how we cycle through sleep, we start obviously in wakefulness. We go briefly through stage one, then two, and then we go into stage three or our deep sleep. Um, And we stay in that for about 40 minutes, the first cycle of the night, And then we pop up into REM for a very small amount of time. So a complete sleep cycle is between 90 and 110 minutes. And as healthy adults, we need about five complete sleep cycles. One of the points I make when I'm talking about sleep is so often these days, people are only getting six and a half hours, okay? That's that's an average. They need about eight, eight and a half hours. So they're cutting out one complete sleep cycle. Now, the body is very concerned with making sure you're healthy for the next day, that you survive, okay? It needs to make sure you're going to survive. So it gets most of its slow way of sleep in the first third of the night and most of its REM in the last third of the night. Now, the REM is the thing that's really important for your cognitive health and for how you think and behave the next day, but deep sleep is really important for your physical health. So when you cut off the last sleep cycle of the night, you are really going to find feel that in your ability to think and behave well the next day. Because the bottom line is that the body is making interested in making sure that you survive and be healthy. It's not so interested in whether you're smart or not. And so it'll cut out the REM, but it will not cut out your deep sleep. Fascinating stuff. Um, I have so many questions around this. Uh, one is around your, uh, I guess, your view on what's adequate amount then for mm. um, for people, what's an adequate amount of sleep and why. Um, and I preface this because um, I've had a lot of people ask me to um, use this medium to ask you about their situations and I've been in this too, feeling that I've had my eight to nine hours but still feeling tired Mm. Um, and a lot of the listeners have actually said that they get adequate sleep um, around that figure as well but then they start to be quite drowsy through the day. Now, I know this might have so many um, variables involved from hormones to what they're eating, um, 
but what have you found around um, what's adequate for most people and um, any research around that? There's a lot of research around this and um, there's quite a, a, a big study, a data um, study that came out um, probably a few years ago now um, that showed that on average, as adults, we need somewhere between seven to nine hours sleep, okay? But it's an individual measure. So I might need eight and a half and you might need eight. You need to get the amount that you need on a regular basis. Most of us aren't getting that, okay? So I know ahead of time that the research also tells me, well, we need this. This is as a biological animal, this is what we need. Most, a lot of us aren't getting it. However, there's a a qualifier in that about 2% of the population have a short sleep gene, Mm. which means they only need about five hours sleep to get, to do everything else that my body takes eight hours to do in sleep, they can get done in five hours. And there's also a long sleep gene. And so for these people, they need to sleep more than nine hours to do everything that I need to do in eight, eight and a half hours. But I do stress lots of people think they're short sleepers and they're actually not short sleepers. Um, it is a, it is inherited. So if your mum, dad, you know, family are all never slept well or had short sleep and they get, their life is fine. They've got a healthy body. They've got a good BMI. They're not got any mental health issues that they're managing their work really really well there's all those sorts of there's easy to assess um criteria that you can look at in people to see if they are actually a short sleeper or just think they are and i was actually asked by vogue prior to the uh, i was um, i don't know if you saw the article when i commented on president trump and they asked me if he was a short a true short sleeper and after having given all the characteristics of short sleepers i said no he has all the hallmarks of a sleep deprived person <laughs> you know his unhealthy body weight um impulsive thinking but you know there's all those that we all know i don't have to you know carry on about them here but um yeah so there are short sleepers out there but there's not too many of them. Why would we still feel sleepy if we are having what we need? The first thing I would look at is maybe you're getting seven and a half and you actually need eight and a half. So that's the first thing I'd be looking at. And the way we test how much we need is to think about when we go on holidays. So if it's an adventurous holiday, you're not going to find out how much sleep you need. So you need to be up at six o'clock every morning and you're hiking till 10. That's not going to help you. But the last time you've had a relaxing holiday, how much sleep did you need to make you feel really good? So you don't look at the first week because that's when you play catch up with your sleep. Normally it takes us a bit of time to get away on holidays and we're sort of working really hard the weeks leading up to it. So the first week you're playing catch up. Think about the second and the third week and how much were you sleeping then when there was no imperative of work or whatever other problems you have. Um, and so if you were sleeping then eight and a half hours and feeling great, then that's what you need to take back to your work life, all right? The other thing is people can have um, be sleeping eight or nine hours and what concerns me, if people are sleeping nine hours and they're saying to me, I'm still really tired, you say, okay, you're sleeping nine hours just the odd occasion or you're sleeping nine hours all the time? I'm sleeping nine hours all the time and I'm really tired. Okay, so I'm, I then think maybe there's a sleep disorder that's been undiagnosed. So, for example, you could have restless legs or sleep apnea, the two most common ones, but there are a number of other things. In fact, there's about 70 or 75 sleep disorders, so there's a lot. Or um, for young women, um, anemia is low iron levels. is really important for them to think about as well. So 
really the way we need to look at sleep is that our sleep is meant to allow us to wake up the next day able to meet the joys and the challenges of that day. So oftentimes we meet the challenges. They're the things that we have to do. We have to get done. But we don't meet the joy. So, for example, if we're really tired and we've done all this work at work and we come home and our partner says to you, um, look, it's so exciting. I've just booked a great restaurant. We're going to go out. We're going to have a really good time. So many people go, oh, no, I just want to go to bed. (laughs) So that we're not meeting the joys, which is bad because that's what we want to meet. We want to have the joy in our life. Why would we want to work if we can't have joy? So think about if that's you and um, if if you're getting nine hours sleep a night and you're still feeling really tired, you need to talk to your doctor about that. Mm, very, very helpful. Uh, you mentioned um, females in there. Uh, I wanted to ask you if there are any differences around sleep for males and females. Gosh, yes. And um, just makes me despair that so there's not enough research out there about this because we think like in the sleep, Sleep is a really new area of medicine, and so we're just finding out about it. But for women, women have a life cycle, and their sleep is is quite different and their sleep needs are quite different to men. So um, women, uh, once they hit puberty, women need on average an extra 20 minutes in men of sleep, and they will need that for the rest of their life. The hard fact is they will struggle to get it. Right, so there's a few times in a woman's a woman's life that is very particularly difficult. So, um, fertile women have a hormonal cycle, and the second half of their cycle, they've got a large amount of progesterone, and this happens every month. So, progesterone is a soporific; it actually makes you tired. Right, so you need more sleep when you've got progesterone. Now, the reason for this is very basic. You could be incubating a baby the second half of your cycle, okay? So nature's protecting you. But in this, and and years and years ago, before women were allowed to be in the workforce, the second half of their cycle, they were able to sleep more if they needed to. Their day was pretty, you know, at, at leisure. However, now they've still got the same imperative day after day, week after week, and it doesn't matter the different times of the month. And often young women don't recognise or don't give in to the tiredness that they experience in the second half of the cycle. Now, one of the things that sleep deprivation does cause us to have is um, a lot of anxiety. It will increase your stress levels. It will make you uh, a little bit crankier. As we all know, when we're tired, we get cranky, we snap a little bit more. Um, We actually can develop a a poor mental health attitude when we're sleep deprived. Now, if you think about the second half of a woman's cycle, if she's not having the extra sleep she needs due to the presence of the progesterone, by the time it comes to the end of the cycle and just before bleeding, she could be feeling really, really sleepy deprived and all the hallmarks of sleep deprivation being cranky, moody, et cetera, et cetera, are what we call premenstrual syndrome. And lots of these women are being treated with antidepressants. Hmm. And we haven't even started the discussion about, hey, did you know in the second half of your cycle you need more sleep? We haven't even started that discussion. So that's young women. And then we, of course, have women when they're pregnant. And again, most women when they're pregnant are in the workforce. And 
we, we like to think, and, and I'm a woman myself, and I remember being pregnant thinking, oh, this doesn't make any difference. I'm still, I'm able to work. I'm able to do this. I'm able to do that. But I was incubating a baby. I was growing a baby. My body wants me to rest. It wants me to look after this baby. And so it makes me tighter. And I actually then didn't recognize what I know now. I should have been sleeping more. I should have been, I should have been sleeping more. But it's really hard to do that when you've got the imperative of work and the imperative of looking like I'm coping with everything. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, And then, of course, you've got the postnatal area um, when there's a whole lot of issues around the ability to sleep. You've got a baby, you've got your nursing, the woman's nursing and the husband or the partner's often out working. And, you know, people have for years tried to work out what is the cause of uh, postnatal depression? Okay, and that one of the one of the favoured ideas a few years ago um, was that oh, it's because these women who are alpha type personalities all of a sudden have lost control in their life, and that's caused them to be depressed. It was very patriarchal sort of research that was coming out. Anyway, the one thing, the one thing that has been shown to be a consistent factor in postnatal depression is lack of sleep. Okay, so what um, I do with um, young parents is work with them together to work out a plan. There's mum, there's dad and the baby. Work out a plan so that everybody can get adequate sleep, not just one or two, leaving one out. So again, women are very different in that area. And then, of course, menopause, there's a whole other lot list of issues and around about the age of 50, about one in two women will be... Um, um, having sleep issues and um, really finding life a bit tough. And again, we often say, oh, it's the hormones, but there's reasons for that. And we we really need to talk to these women and explain what's going on and how they can cope with it. So yes, women's sleep is quite different to men. It was a long answer, Ram, I'm sorry, but I don't think there's enough information out there and lots of women are struggling. Oh, it was a very beautiful answer and uh, so complex. Uh, no apology necessary. <laughs> I, uh, I can uh, almost hear the brains of all the listeners <laughs> right now. Um, one thing that I wanted to just ask as a part two is um, you mentioned that you, you try to help young couples and mm. newborn um, find a plan. Um, what would that be? This might be a selfish answer for me moving into the future. Oh, okay, yeah. But, you know, what, what kind of plans well, work for young people yeah. that are, you know, wake, getting woken up in the middle of the night and all this? Well, it's really important to have a sleep plan, you see, because what happens, and if you haven't had children, you know, you wouldn't recognise what happens. A child wakes you up at two o'clock in the morning, you're already sleep deprived, so it wakes up at two o'clock in the morning, you get up and respond, come back to bed, and then you've got no idea what's going on for the rest of the night. Your partner might get up at some stage because you say, oh, I can't move, I'm so tired. And so everyone's walking around the house like a zombie all totally in love with this new little baby, but all totally sleep deprived. And the baby isn't getting entrained in their sleep patterns either. So new parents especially need to be um, educated about sleep, the importance of sleep. And one of the key things I say is you keep track of your sleep. So as a mum, for example, if you've had two nights that you've only had six hours sleep, you need your third night to get eight hours. Right? Because you're actually looking after, if you're at home, you're looking after the most precious thing in your life. So you need an eight-hour sleep. So every third night you must get at least eight hours, which means that if you're breastfeeding, 
a little bit of planning, but it's a mature conversation with your partner. Okay, this is your night on, right? But your partner, the husband often, will have to uh, keep track of his sleep too. So then you look at it and then you have a respect for the other person's requirements. And at the same time, you need to understand that, and a big call out here, less than six months, don't expect your baby to sleep through the night. Uh, It really is important not to have your expectations too high. Some babies will be born and within a few weeks, they'll sleep through the night. That's a lucky card, okay? (laughs) It's nothing the mother or father have done. It's just luck. And I really want to reassure young mums out there that it's nothing you have done or not done that's caused this newborn babe not to sleep through the night. But what you must try to do is entrain circadian rhythm as early as possible. And by six months, a baby can have good circadian entrainment. And by that I mean is understanding that the light hours are for wakefulness and the night hours are for sleep. And the way we do this is when we have, we start a routine in the evening, of course the baby's going to sleep during the day, but you need a routine at night that the baby begins to understand really, 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 really early on. Right? It might be a bathing, a feeding, a reading a book or whatever. Um, and then when the child goes or the baby goes to sleep, if they wake up at 10 or 11 o'clock and you've got to remember that you're so in love with this new baby that often all the lights go on and you start to play. Well, that's not teaching the baby that night hours is for sleep. So very dim lighting, really minimal um, um, activity, just get in there, feed, sleep, feed, sleep, put the baby down and go back to bed. And you repeat that so the baby begins to understand that there is a circadian, I'm meant to sleep now, I'm meant to be awake in the daylight hours. So we're all Pavlovian. You know, we're all conditionable animals and a baby is really conditionable. Mm. I love all that. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Um, Now, that is a perfect segue to talk about um, what we can do to naturally achieve uh, good sleep and good sleep quantity before bed. Mm. Any tips that we need to – you mentioned planning, right? So how can we – better prepare for mm. sleep. Well, we can easily do that. And what's happened, and I, and I often talk about this in, in my, um, you know, conference talks and things like that, that what we've done, what's worked forever, like when I say forever, I mean forever, is the rhythm of the earth, that the sun has risen and the sun has gone down. Now, this is as a result of this sun rising of a morning and the sun going down at night, the body has adapted and start, and has this wonderful thing called melatonin. Now, most people have heard of melatonin. I'm not quite sure they understand what it is or what it does. So melatonin, I call it the vampire hormone because it doesn't like the light. It will switch. What happens is the eye detects the level of light. So right now the sun's going down a little bit. Um, and so if I, it's a bit still bright in this room, but if this level of light was starting to go down, my brain, my eye would detect that fading, the lower level of light and would start producing a small amount of melatonin. Now, if I didn't switch on any electric light and I maintained that amount of dimness and then to darkness as the sun would go, by the time it became dark, I would have quite a lot of melatonin in my system and I would be about an hour and a half after that happened, I'd be ready to go to sleep. Now, often people recognise this when they go camping, for example. They go camping 
And they go to sleep much earlier than they thought. And lots of these people go to sleep easily when in the past they've tossed and turned in their home bed, not able to get to sleep. And that's because they've responded to the the sun going down. So the rhythm of the earth, we've actually looked at the rhythm of the earth and the body responds as it has forever. So when we wake up in the morning and our eye sees the bright light, it stops production of melatonin and it sets up the cycle for the next 24 hours. So it sets up all our circadian cycles and there's loads of them. There's a um, hormonal, there's the temperature, there's the digestive, you know, and the, the alertness cycle, all those sorts of things are all based on when we offset our melatonin every morning. So that cycle, as I said, I can't stress this enough, has gone on forever. In the last five to ten years, more so in the last five, I believe, We've absolutely stuffed it up, absolutely stuffed it up. But we haven't had a discussion about it. No one's asked, do you want to stuff up this cycle that's worked forever? We haven't even had that discussion because everybody, right down to little six-year-olds, are looking at their iPhone or their iPad or looking at really bright TVs. We don't. We, we buy the highest definition of TVs and screens, which have the brightest of light. And what is our eye looking at well into the night? Well into the time, it's meant to be getting that beautiful melatonin being produced so that we can just go to bed and fall asleep. We're not doing it. So the first thing we need to do is switch off. We switch off at least one hour before bedtime. I was afraid you were going to say that. (laughs) That's right. And most people just go, oh, no. (laughs) It's so important. And when we switch off, and I don't mean just switch off your technology, TV, everything, dim the lights, make sure all the lights that you, the room you're in are really dim. And the other thing that you can do is really special is light a candle. Now, lighting candles, and people think, oh, you know, um, it's really strong imagery for the brain to relax. And when we see a candle, most when I ask people, how do you feel when you see a lit candle? They say, oh, relaxed. Well, they are because they start to produce serotonin which is our feel-good hormone, which is our precursor to melatonin. So the body is a fabulous, fabulous thing. We just have to listen to it and stop imposing these incredible restrictions that we've given to it now. And so at the same time, we can take advantage of some of the other um, circadian cycles, which is our temperature cycle. And we like to fall asleep on a decreasing temperature. And one of the things we can do to enhance that effect is to have a warm to hot shower uh, in that hour before bedtime. I don't want you to have a super hot shower or bath because you don't want to warm up, increase your core temperature. You just want to increase your peripheral temperature so that the drop in the peripheral temperature is noted by the body and it's time to go to sleep. So there are those things you can do in the immediate time before bed. And if you have a particularly alert brain and lots have been going on, a nice relaxation exercise is always nice. Get on the floor, just do a bit of breathing, um, just enough to to quell the mind a little bit. Now, the other thing is how we spend our wakeful hours does affect how we sleep and vice versa, how we sleep affects our wakeful hours. So we need to have a few rules and I do have rules. And um, one of them is you get up the same time every day and now you understand why because of the melatonin off switch. Mm. We want to off switch melatonin and set up that beautiful circadian cycle. Um, And we don't have coffee after midday. 
Um, alcohol is no good for sleep. It's a sleep stealer. Whole foods are really important. Um, they provide the minerals and vitamins that we so need to produce healthy amounts of melatonin. Um, exercise is really important, but you don't exercise within three hours of bedtime because that alerts the body and alerts the brain. But if people feel like they can't fit their exercise in, rest assured, a 20-minute jog or brisk walk is actually sufficient exercise. But time and time again, research has shown that good exercise is associated significantly with good sleep. So exercise will help your sleep. And you do not, do not, do not have a large meal within three hours of bedtime because, again, that will make sleep very difficult. And sometimes people will fall asleep really quickly after a large meal but they'll wake up a couple of hours later being quite alert. So there are those rules that we can do that we really help. Love it. So noted down a couple of things here. I've got to go to, to a candle store after that's this. That's right, yeah. Um, and as we handy. age, Ram, you know, candles make us look great. There you go. Yeah, I love it. And there's a certain stillness. I'm glad that you said that because a lot of listeners are visual people mm. on this show. Um, and uh, for sure, for me, it's a, it's a trigger that... Um, there's a silence, there's a calm. Yeah, there is. Um, so that's really cool. I love that tip. Uh, temperature, um, the warm and not too hot bath mm. is is uh, very achievable, I think. Um, breathing techniques, that's something I've just been adopting uh, oh, okay. recently mm. uh, at a more of a uh, yoga practice style mm. because I was grinning as you were talking about camping because I uh, went to a yoga retreat with my partner mm. um for four days, three nights, and I'd never done yoga before. It was yoga morning and night yeah. at a specific time, and meals, the last meal was 6 o'clock well, in the evening, go. and mm. I never have my last meal at 6 o'clock. I'm, I'm still munching on something, even if it's, you know, a snack at 10, 10.30 <laughs> at night. And and I had never slept so good. Oh, is that marvelous? Ever. Yeah. And so this is where we met yes. um, uh, yeah. Julian. Yeah. So, Jill actually um, said, well, you found one of your, your answers because I've, ne- I've always searched for a way to sleep better mm. and I'd never slept like that. So come 6 a.m., I was ready to go. Yeah, like, with I, energy. With so yeah. much energy. <laughs> and I'm, I've, I'd never reached that quality of sleep before and I think a lot of it had to do with the whole foods too. So you mentioned that. Um, all we ate was whole foods. Yes, um, really important, especially yeah. in this age of fast food, processed food, which actually give us very little nutrition. And and the, the kicker on that is um, it was all vegetarian and I'd never gone without meat for four days ever. Ah. So it was a heavy detox yeah. as well, but well, felt great. Yeah. And meat at night is difficult. Yeah. Especially if you want to sleep. Mm. Uh, 12 p.m. coffee, that's a good tip. Not after that. I've, yes. I th- the latest I've had, I think, is around the 2 p.m. mark, but uh, that's a very good uh, tip to move it to the midday. That's right. Um, avoid alcohol. Uh, what about red wine? What about red wine yeah, at night? Yeah. See, um, red wine is lovely. No one's going to say it's not. I really love my red wine. And a glass might be all right, but actually, um, by and large, if you have trouble sleeping, alcohol is not something you should be having. It does steal your sleep. Mm. Um, and the trouble is sometimes people use alcohol to relax and it can, I mean, it does work quite well. But if you have one glass of wine to relax, very soon you're having two and then you're having three. And at that point in time, you just so your body's not actually 
getting the benefit, you very quickly get used to it. So I always have that, just be cautious around alcohol use and be aware that if you're not sleeping well, then you need to cut out the alcohol. Hmm. Good, good tips for all. Um, and you mentioned exercise. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, a lot of people have been asking um, around, is it damaging to be training late at night, especially when people can only find that slot mm. of movement when they're especially working in the office or whatever, um, you know, nine to six, and then they're training straight after work and they won't have dinner till maybe 8.30, 9 <laughs> o'clock. Um, but I'm glad you pointed that out, that to really try to, I guess, train when you when you wake up. Train when you wake up or definitely train before 7 p.m. at mm. night. Yeah, okay. that's not negotiable, actually, if you want to have good sleep. Training at 9 o'clock at night is just not good mm. for your body. That's from the expert, guys. There you go. <laughs> um, continuing on this connection of sleep to food, in 2012 you released a book titled The Sleep Diet. Mm. Um, what's the most important message you wanted to communicate through this book? Look, I um, wrote that book. It was a funny story and often books are written as a consequence of something someone says. But I was doing quite a lot of lecturing around the place and about metabolic dysfunction and sleep. And, you know, when you work in a world of research, you become quite cloistered and you think everybody understands what you know. You think this is common knowledge it's really interesting, isn't it? Anyway, so I was actually travelling through Europe doing a whole series of lectures on sleep and metabolic dysfunction. And um, many of the times they were academic audiences, so they knew, but a number of times we just had the general public come in and talk. Anyway, at the end of one of these, I was amazed at how many, I would have line up of people wanting to ask me questions afterwards. And that's a bit daunting when you're giving, <laughs> giving a talk and you've got to go somewhere else the next day. So really all you want to do is go home and go to sleep. <laughs> anyway, this one person said to me, so is there a book I can read about this? I'm really interested. And I said, oh, look, there isn't, but there's a whole series. I can send you a, a list of academic papers. And he just looked, you know, his <laughs> face dropped and and he looked at me and said, well, why don't you write the book? And I went, oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> move on, move on. And look, it would have been about a year later. I thought, I need to write that book because people don't understand that lack of sleep is causing their unhealthy um, body weight. And you know, if we recognise the fact that in the 1960s people were sleeping an average sleep time of 8.5 hours, we're now sleeping of a weekday 6.8 hours on average. So that's a drop of our average sleep time by about 20%. Over that same time, our obesity rate has tripled and today 63% of Australians are either overweight or obese. Now, it's not just the sleep it's that lack of exercise, the use of the car and the processed food. But people have to recognise that it's a triumvirate of health. It's what we eat, how we exercise and how we sleep. And if we miss any one of those, we're really going to struggle to have good physical health and mental health actually as well. Very powerful stuff. Um, swinging the needle to the siesta culture. Yes. Um, do you recommend power naps? Any do's and do don'ts mm. around this? It is interesting, isn't it, the siesta culture, the Mediterranean area who do have the siesta culture, although they're losing it a bit, have the best cardiovascular outcomes in the world. Is that right? Yeah. So we talk about the Mediterranean diet is something that we need to do, which is a food thing, but nobody really has talked about their sleep patterns, which I find quite you know, distressing really. And I think perhaps in the future we'll be looking at that as well. So do I believe in power naps? Yes, I do. Um, 
because we're confined to a nine to five or eight to six working life in Australia, then the best we can do is a 20 minute nap. And um, we should be doing that when we have a physiological low of alertness, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon. So often people will feel really tired then. 3.30-itis. Yep, that's it. But it's a physiological low. It's a circadian rhythm and we have a peak of alertness at about 9am, another one at 9pm, and we have a dip in alertness at about 3pm. And so often we can use that to our advantage, which is what the siesta culture does, mm. and we can have a 20-minute nap. And so what we do is we lay down and we set an alarm for 20 minutes. Now, whether or not we sleep before the alarm goes off, don't worry. Just get up when the alarm goes off because if you don't sleep, you're not tired enough to sleep. But you will sleep, or most of us will sleep at that time, and we might only sleep for five minutes. But what we do when we do sleep is actually we actively degrade this um, neurotransmitter in the brain called adenosine, which the more of that we have in the brain, the tighter our brain feels. Okay, it's the thing that tells our brain that we're tired and we need to sleep. So when we go to sleep, we actively degrade this neurotransmitter and we actually don't produce any more of it while we're asleep. So when we wake up, we've got less uh, adenosine and our brain's thinking, oh, we're not tired anymore, we're awake. And if you do a little bit of physical exercise, like star jumps, or I, I use a hula hoop actually oh, when really? I wake up from my <laughs> power nap um, just for a couple of minutes and then you're ready to go for a good four or five hours afterwards really uh, quite powerfully and refreshed. So 20 minutes, don't 20 kind minutes. of go hard out into a two-hour no, sleep. No, you do that, you run the risk of waking up from deep sleep and many um, people will have experienced this when they fall asleep for a long period in the afternoon and they wake up quite disoriented. They don't know what day it is, whether they need to go to work, what's happening. And that's because they're waking up from deep sleep and they will have something called sleep inertia. Now, sleep inertia will take a long time to recover from and it can be very disoriented. What does it mean if we snore heavily um, related to you know sleep, sleep apnea, I guess, and, and how does snoring affect our sleep? Um, snoring, you can be a simple snorer, in which case we mean that you snore, but you don't stop breathing as well. Um, sleep apnea is when you um, stop breathing. So apnea means lack of breath. Yeah, so um, when we have sleep apnea, we actually, what happens is we're snoring. And so when we snore, we've got a, a very um, floppy upper airway. So it's the airway moving in and out as the air passes through it. So it goes... <laughs> like that. So mm. it's a very unpleasant noise. Um, but the big thing about apnea is that a person will be snoring and they'll be going <laughs> and then they don't breathe for a period right. of time. So they actually close off the upper airway. The, their floppy upper airway becomes so floppy it collapses. And the only way to open that airway again is to wake up. Now, these people don't know that they're waking up over and over again to clear their airway because it's only for a very short amount of time. Uh-huh. It's, it's, you know, milliseconds, um, but it is an arousal. So you come out of the sleep state that you're in into wakefulness and then you have to drop back into it. So people with severe sleep apnea can be doing this hundreds of times a night. You know, we've seen people who stop breathing, um, you know, 60, 70 times an hour and they might stop breathing for 20, 30, 40 seconds at a time. So they're hardly getting any air in their lungs throughout the night. Not only 
that's a big deal because the way we bring oxygen into our body is through the air that we breathe. So these people actually drop their oxygen levels quite severely during the night and they can be very much affected um, both in their mental health and in their physical health if it's not treated. Any advice to prevent or treat? Yep, there's loads of uh, ways that we could treat Uh, sleep apnea, but it does need to be diagnosed first. Mm. So the first thing you need to do is talk to your doctor about the fact that you snore Mm -hmm. and that you're feeling awful, but that you snore and that um, they will probably send you off for a sleep study. Um, The thing is too, these days, it's so easy. We can actually take a recording of how we sleep and people with sleep apnea have a very, uh, most people, I'd say 98% of people with sleep apnea have a very distinct pattern to their breathing that is highly recognisable by most uh, doctors. So (laughs) record your sleep and take it to the doctor. Yeah. Awesome advice. Um, what happens when we jolt? Um, you know, I, I often see people where they're on the train, yes. a little jolt. I mean, I've done it um, right. on the plane yeah. or even when I'm just, yeah, already in bed, um, you know, however many minutes in and I'm dozing off and then bang, I'm jolting. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, look, this is completely normal. They're called either myoclonic jerks or hypnagogic jerks. And what they are is they tend to happen more often when we're very tired. So we're falling into sleep, so we should be in light sleep. But because we're so tired, we get a bit of an intrusion of REM. This is what they think happens. So in REM, we've got a lot of visual stuff happening. Our brain is very active. So you're actually in non-REM sleep, in light sleep, but you're getting a little bit of uh, intrusion of the brain activity of REM. And so you have this very visual hallucination. So you're falling down a step or, you know, doing something like that and it wakes you up and then you go back to sleep. So it's completely normal, but it does, it's a bit funny when you observe it on the train, isn't it? (laughs) You always get a bit of a laugh when someone's doing that in a meeting. (laughs) Always been very curious to know. (laughs) But completely normal. Wonderful. Um, A couple more questions before we wrap up. Uh, What, we we mentioned... um, acting out in your sleep um for sleepwalkers or those Mm. that have slept walked um what does this mean and and how can we limit this if we do it okay so sleepwalking doesn't come from REM sleep it comes from non-REM deep sleep or uh, stage three because if uh we were sleepwalking when we're in, in rapid eye movement sleep or dream sleep we're paralyzed except for those very few people who have REM behaviour disorder. So sleepwalking actually comes out of our deep sleep and so does sleep talking, all right? Mm. Um, We tend to grow out of it. Children have it uh, more often and that's often because we often think as a sleep as an on and off switch, but it's not. You know, we descend into sleep and we ascend from sleep. So uh, we turn things on and off as we go in or out. So sometimes we don't get the switch completely right. And in children, that is until they mature, the switch sometimes don't play on demand. So they're more likely to sleepwalk or sleep talk. So how do you protect them? Um, Make sure, one of the things we need to make sure is um, to keeping children very relaxed before they go to sleep. So you're more likely to sleep, walk and sleep talk as a child if there's a level of anxiety. So you might have moved house or something's happening at school or you've had a fight with your brother or sister or something like that. So one of the things I do recommend is there's some fantastic books out there, um, Meditations for Children, um, and these are just wonderful. You read them to the children as they go to sleep. And um, 
Star Bright, I think one of them's called, or Moonbeams. And anyway, so um, Moonbeams is great. So what they do is visually you're reading to the story to the child and the child walks through an area where there's a big tree, a worry tree, and they put all their worries on the tree. They don't tell you what the worries are, but you spend some time explaining and reading to them and they walk into this magical place. It could be a magical place with a rabbit or, you know, whatever. And so it takes the child, the child deposits all their worries onto this worry tree and then moves into a magical space throughout the story. And so when we make sure the child is relaxed, we will, we may be able to reduce the episodes of sleepwalking and sleep talking. There's no guarantees, but it's going to create a, a better environment to reduce it. As adults, we need to make sure we keep people safe and children safe. So if you're in an unusual environment as an adult and you know that you're a sleepwalker, just lock the door and make sure that you, you know, keep safe and alert people around you, you know, if you're on holidays um, and if you're uncomfortable, you may well sleepwalk. So the idea with sleepwalking is you keep the person safe, put them back into bed. They're in deep sleep. It'd be difficult to arouse them. They won't remember it the next day. Hmm. Okay. Very, very useful stuff. Now, a question I ask most of my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 Ah, seconds, yeah. uh, speak to Junior. Dr. Carmel, um, <laughs> perhaps when you were finishing high school, what would you tell her? Look, all those years ago, you know, science was not meant to be a very feminine um, career. Women could do more exciting, interesting things than be a scientist. And I was really put off <laughs> by following my my dream of being a scientist and believe it or not, I started off in architecture. Wow, there you go. Because <laughs> I thought, oh, well, it combines, sort of combines mathematics and physics a little bit with with design. And after a year I realised, no, 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 science is where I want to be. And I did, as I said, I went to law thinking, no, no, not science. And just follow your heart. If you, if you are a scientist or a physicist or whatever you are, boy or girl, do what you want to do. Even if people tell you there's no career in that, just do it. Who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? Someone that has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? It's really interesting, isn't it? Um, Because many, many, many years ago when I was at school, junior school, I I learned about, I love chemistry. I have always loved chemistry. And I learned about uh, Madame Curie. Ah, oh, she, she, <laughs> I have always had her as an absolute idol and still do to this day. Firstly, because she was a woman and in those days, oh my gosh, a woman didn't do this sort of stuff. And she had children and she was a double Nobel Prize winner in chemistry and physics. And I thought, I just want to be like her. I want to be her. And then, um, yeah, so she really inspired me from a very young age. Um, it's sort of weird in lots of ways, isn't it? But the other person I remember when I um, really was struggling with choices in careers and should I keep going, you know, it's hard making a living in this area and funding and all that sort of stuff. I went to a talk by um, Graham Clark who developed the cochlear implant. And his story is just fabulous. Like He was always interested in hearing because he had a deaf parent. And so that was his passion from a really early age. And um, he was talking about, you'd think someone like him was funded forever and and really well funded and lots of people were throwing money at him, but he wasn't. And he used to do Leamington drives and things like that. And I thought, wow, I'm going to be you too. Mm. (laughs) So they're the two people that I've really taken a lot of sustenance from. They're great. Those those two names again? Uh, Madame Curie and Graham Clark. 
Beautiful. I'll uh, definitely look into them myself. Um, Now, what's next for you and everything you're involved in for this year and beyond? Yeah, well, um, just more of the same, I guess. I'm really hoping that um, we're going to get good funding. (laughs) We're just always hoping, always optimistic that funding's going to come through for the work we want to do and that it will be successful and we'll just move forward with that. Um, I'm really looking to see um, about writing a third book because I think there's a need for one in this area and I want to do that and I just want to keep raising that awareness around sleep it's, it's everywhere it's just everywhere and I think we're making that a really important area of understanding and education and we mm. haven't done that yet well like I mentioned to you uh, before we start this interview there are so many people interested in this topic um, designers creatives and uh, everyone mm. really um, and uh I'm sure they'll want to reach out to you. So is, is there a way that listeners can get in touch with you online? Yeah, there's a, a website. It's, um, uh, <laughs> I have to remember my website. It's sleepforhealth with a fori.net.au. And just on that, I just um, about the creative brain, if you Google sleep, you will be amazed at how many discoveries have made have been made in sleep, all right? There's just kukule, um dreamt up the the shape of the benzene ring um james cameron dreamt up avatar and the terminator you just go in there there's stacks and stacks and stacks and there's a lot of research out there to show that creative brains tend to sleep more and they have more rem now there's a reason for this and it's so exciting i'm, I'm sorry i hadn't mentioned no, it this before is, great. is that when we are in rapid eye movement sleep the prefrontal cortex which is a part of the brain that makes us really smart is deactivated Okay, but this prefrontal cortex is also the rational part of the brain. So in rapid eye movement sleep or our dream sleep, we can have thoughts that neurocognitively speaking we cannot have when we're awake because the rational brain will not let you have it. So, for example, if I came to you and said, I've got this great plan that all I need to do, though, is walk through this brick wall. (laughs) I'm not going to come up with a plan like that, okay? Not rationally, not in my wakeful hours, but guess what? In my sleep, nothing stops me from doing that, does it? Okay. So in my sleep, I can be here and in the next room, walk through that wall in the next room. It's no big deal. So what happens when we are asleep is we can check all the other folders in our in our dream sleep, especially all our other folders in our brain and pick up bits and pieces of that idea and we can make connections that we couldn't make when we we're awake. So for Kukulia, who was looking at um, the shape of the benzene ring, he was a chemist and he went to sleep and he was dreaming about atoms, you know, atoms sort of going round as tennis balls or something, which you do as a chemist, I guess. And after a while, these, these um, atoms became snakes and all of a sudden the snakes were going around, which is what would happen in a dream, nothing peculiar about that. And all of a sudden, one of the snakes took its, um, by the mouth, took its tail and formed a ring. And Kukulia woke up at that moment and said, that is the shape of the benzene ring. He just knew. And you can do that when you sleep, but you cannot do that when you're awake. So if you want to be, we talk about the innovative country and all that sort of stuff, uh, Prime Minister Turnbull should be talking about is go home and get your sleep because everyone will be much more cleverer. Oh, that's very, very good. I, uh, 
I think that's the perfect way to, to end the show. Uh, Dr. Carmel, uh, or should I just say Carmel? Carmel, um, thank she's, you. She's yeah. mentioned me to, uh, to, to call her Carmel. But thank you so much for your time. You are sharing such valuable information to a world who desperately needs to prioritize better sleeping behaviors. It's been a true honor having you on the show. Thank you so much for allowing me to talk so much. <laughs> Cheers. It's thank been you. a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in, Giants. I hope you found this interview as valuable as I did. Feel free to share this episode with even just one friend or a loved one if you think it'd benefit them. Giantthinkers.com will take them right to it. Before you race off, a quick reminder to check out AHBeard. They're so confident they can improve your life through better sleep that they've developed a six-week sleep challenge to have you sleeping better in no time. The challenge is a free health and well-being improvement program that delivers customized sleep advice based on the type of sleeper you are. They've partnered with organizations such as the Sleep Health Foundation, and leading sleep scientist, Dr. Carmel Harrington, today's guest, to develop a scientifically sound program for building good sleep habits. I've done it and can personally testify that my mood, energy, immunity, physical performance, productivity, weight loss, and mental health have improved. You've got to try it for yourself. There really is nothing to lose. Register your interest for the next six-week sleep challenge. It's free. Head to ahbeard.com. For any questions, hit me up on Snapchat or Instagram. My handle is the giant thinker. And let me know how you go. I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Dr. Carmel, who said, Our sleep is meant to allow us to meet the joys and challenges of the next day. Often we meet the challenges, but not the joys. So we need to reevaluate and prioritize the importance of sleep. 